Welcome to another exciting episode of The Nuclear View, a weekly podcast of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to think deterrence. The views of the guests are their own. Welcome to another fantastic, exciting edition of The Nuclear View. I am not your host, Adam Lowther. I am your host, Curtis McGiffin. Adam is still on assignment, though not on vacation. And we are ready to uh, to see if we can fill the void uh, in the big chair uh, as we move forward and keep you entertained for the next 30 to 40 minutes with regard to um, our National Institute for Deterrence Studies and um, and what we're thinking about. Uh, and so we're going to start with the podcast today and with some introductions. Uh, I have here with us today, Dr. James Petrowski. How are you, Jim? I'm doing well. Had a great Thanksgiving. Fantastic. And uh, we have back with us one of our senior fellows, uh, Kirk Fancher. How are you, sir? I'm doing great and thankful that Adam got lost someplace in the Pentagon and hasn't been able to find his way out. <laughs> He's still wandering around. Uh, yes, we managed I'm to guessing, make it. I'm guessing food court too. You know, could be, could He's be. down at... Down at Dunkin' Donuts trying to figure out how to get out of the building. <laughs> That's right. Paying outrageous prices and um, and, uh, and getting lost in the earring. Uh, hey, look, we've all made it through the Thanksgiving holiday, and that's always exciting. And we are glad uh, to, to have you all here. Hopefully you made it through and had a good time with your family and friends. Uh, and, um, and so, uh, you know, send us an email if you had uh, an uncomfortable conversation with some crazy uncle uh, who is arguing with you why nuclear weapons and nuclear deterrence is a good thing to have. Uh, we'll, we'd always be interested in hearing that. Um, hey, okay, so today we're going to talk about, uh, it's a little belated, it's an article that Adam and I wrote a couple of weeks ago, um, but, you know, y- you never can stop talking about China. And uh, so this is an article that, that we wrote that's uh, hung on our on our uh, online journal there, the uh, globalsecurityreview.com, which you can find, and we encourage you to go there every day uh, to check out some of our articles um, and articles from our fellows and others uh, who uh, want to write about uh, these kinds of national security-related issues. This piece is called The Pentagon's China Military Report, Why Americans Should Be Alarmed. Uh, this is a piece that uh, we did uh, to address the annual report that was provided the, by the Department of Defense to Congress called the Military and Security Developments Involving the People's Republic of China 2023, an annual report to Congress. So long title, fairly descriptive in the title. Um, but while the title is not very sexy, um, the write-up in it is very interesting and very, I think, very shocking. Uh, and I wanted to uh, to take some time today for us to sort of talk about this with our listeners uh, as we go through this. I want to give a caveat in that there's probably a classified version of this that, you know, that none of us have seen. Uh, we're not privy to any of that. All we're looking at is the public release version of this. Um, that it, that is in here, and 
And, uh, you know, the article kind of goes through some things that I was quite alarmed with. And what I think I'm going to do here is just sort of go over a couple of them. I, I think I reviewed 10 items. We're not going to go through all 10. But I think what we ought to do is just go through a couple of what I think are my favorites as, as the host today and just sort of get your thoughts, Kirk and Jim, on these items and see uh, if uh, the authors were on right on or a little off or what other color commentary you would like to add for the listeners who may have already had the pleasure of reading this article. So the first one here was uh, something uh, that I talk about, uh, which is uh, that the, uh, the DOD is now estimating that China has at least, that's their term, at least, which means more than <laughs> uh, 500 operational nuclear warheads. And that this is an, an estimate that has been significantly increased just several years ago. Um, I think in the 2020 estimate, they were pitching that China had something in the low 200s. Um, do we think we blew the estimate in the 20 in 2020 or do we think that china is just really building them faster than we can count them let's go to you first jim yeah well thanks first of all an assessment i won't give you an assessment of the authors uh, i'll let the audience decide <laughs> on that they're fantastic all right the, the second i'm going to give you a very good answer probably which was the whole part of this article that really uh, irritated me, uh, you know, in, in reading about how this assessment went about. All these probabilities and abouts, and and I love your mathematical term. At least you remember, there's at least, there's at most, yeah. and of course, approximately equal to. Uh, they're all valuable uh, somewhere along the line. But really, what really, uh, first of all, the value I found in this article, aside from your ten assessment points, which we'll talk about later, is it caused me. To go back and look at this re- review and I would suggest everyone it's linked on the it's linked on the site it's linked in the article to go and read the annual report to Congress is valuable uh, it a little bit more of a snooze fest than the actual uh, article that uh, Curtis and Adam uh, sort of sifted out for you but it is I think a worthwhile review because it gives you an insight as to where our government is and what we know um, the second thing is, and I appreciate it, Curtis, as you say, yeah, did we get it wrong? Were there just two? Did we miscount before or do we have the right number? And so I'm going to go to our podcast two, three weeks ago when we talked about the B61, I believe it was. And there was a, you, you made a comment about uh, uh, someone who is in the disarmament community saying, you know, our modernization plans are causing other people to think they need to start modernizing and building their weapons program. Uh, Well, if that's the case, either we were terribly wrong or that's not the case. And I believe that's not the case. And if we were terribly wrong, it's almost more frightening. So none, neither of your answers (laughs) is very comforting to me, except that, well, it probably was right. So I'll pass that on to Curtis or Kurt. How do you like that, Kirk? Kirk. I'm going to take the inside baseball track. First of all, <laughs> um, I, I read yesterday uh, that same uh, sort of assessment came up with a different number, right? But they were also talking about the Iranians and other people and that basically said, um, we guess at how many warheads they have based on our guess on how much fissile material they have. All right. So we're guessing about a guess uh, is the right. other thing. And then the other other thing I would say, um, as the you know, as the co-author of a couple reports to China uh, to uh, 
to China. To uh, actually, that would be a real bad thing. Uh, a couple of reports to Congress um, is uh, you know quite often the number is what authors of the report want it to be, or the the ah. the, uh, the masters we serve as we write the report. Tell the us reviewers what they want it to be. What you know? Here's the number. Now write me a report. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, you know, we miss things and we, you know, it's, so, so unless they're going to tell me the mean, the median, the mode and the standard deviation, um, it's meaningless to me. Thank um, you, Kirk. And, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, it's a guess about a guess. Um, and it's, and my guess is it's a bigger number than that because they didn't want to scare anybody. Ah, um, okay. Yeah. But. I don't, and I also, when I think about that, I can pair, you know, two things come to mind. I can pair it to the number of uh, ICBM sites we've got, which is 400, right? So now they got, mm-hmm. they got one, they got one per ICBM site. And now I start to worry about what it looks like in combination with Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I, and another thing that, you know, wasn't really talked about in there is how many of those weapons do we think are are on alert, how many of them would have to be generated? Um, you know, are they on solid fuel missiles or are they on liquid fuel missiles? So there's, there's a lot of things that go into thinking about those numbers when formulating the so what. Right. Well, my guess is if we, if we can't get the numbers of warheads right, we probably are not going to get the get the the force posture and, and, and procedures accurate either. Uh, so that would be uh, the one thing I would get at. And and so the guesstimate now is right is a thousand by 2030 and fifteen hundred by 2035. So we think they're building a hundred per year. Cipri just reported in January of 2023 that they had added 60 uh, in 2022. Uh, so, and, you know, uh, so the, the Stockholm group, you know, felt like they're at least adding 60. And, uh, and so I would have expected them to highball rather than lowball the numbers since they are a sort of a disarmament advocacy. I think I saw something out of the Federation of Scientists. I don't want to, I don't want to throw too much bad stuff their way unjustifiably. So I can't attribute it directly to them, but I saw a number for, somebody's guess at what the, you know, if Israel has weapons, what their arsenal might be. And it was mm-hmm. in the same range as the Chi- as the number we just heard for the Chinese. Mm-hmm. So, well. I mean, you're, you're guessing about a lot of things and it's just, re- you know, um, what I really do care about is the things that we can see much more easily. Um, and so the thing that alarms me is the number of silos they've built. All right, so let's talk about that. That was the number two item in the article, uh, and is that um, uh, again the report says uh, they have uh, that they have built or are building at least, which means more, <laughs> the three hundred uh, intercontinental ballistic missile silos. Um, many of these silos have been built over just the last two years. Uh, these silos were discovered by uh, by. Uh, uh, several uh, folks. Uh, no, unfortunately, not a, not an American balloon. Uh, they were discovered by commercial imagery uh, being used by um, some um, uh, nuclear advocacy, nuclear disarmament advocacy groups uh, that are out there. I don't want to impugn by name, but um, uh, and 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 to their credit, they they published these things. And we didn't hear the the report of these missile silos from our government. We heard them from. 
uh, from these um, you know, third parties who are just interested people for whatever reason, whatever their motivations are, and they at least did the right thing by reporting them. And then the Washington Post picked up the article and it kind of ran. And um, and then I think there was a tweet at one point before it became X. There was a tweet at one point by strategic uh, strategic command saying, you know, here's another uh, report on this and that. And it, it just seems kind of, it's a little dissatisfying to me as an American citizen that, that I'm not getting these sorts of announcements, uh, per se, but what's more interesting. And I point out in this article, uh, it, it, is that it also states, uh, at least, at least some, <laughs> so we have another precise number, uh, for you, Jim, at least some of these ICBM silos are now loaded. So this is, uh, this is perhaps, um, I think, the first public admittance uh, written in a in a sentence in a giant <laughs> annual report to Congress that they're actually loading these missile silos um, with, uh, I think the report says DF-31s, but there's possibility maybe DF-41s in the future. And, um, and, and this is a real big deal because one of the things that I've always believed is that China is not going to make a move on Taiwan until enough of those missile silos are loaded to where they can hold uh, America at risk and coerce us into uh, not coming to the aid of Taiwan. Now that they've started loading these things, hmm, what, what is our future? Is, is, this, is this possible conflict getting nearer? Uh, so what say you, Jim, uh, on that uh, issue? Yes, I, I, I like the numbers game, um, mainly because we've covered this in the past. I don't remember where it was, where we discussed how many nuclear weapons does it take to deter, sort of like how many licks of the, the, the lollipop <laughs> to get to the chocolate center. Um, and here we are. Um, so the two things that, that bother me is what what are the numbers and what do those numbers mean in terms of us deterring them against what we have presently? I mean, I, maybe we can't discuss the details there, but it's, it's a worthwhile thought process. What does it take to deter, you know, the number of weapons that they have? And then they, they have a stratagem. They're moving up. Okay. If you look at, you know, calculus is about changing and cha this change is moving in the upward direction. Okay. For the Chinese, the Chinese weapons, as well as their silos. At what point do they hit a breaking point? As you said, whether it be Taiwan, whether it be combining with Russia for some other nefarious reasons, where it's executing some sort of economic, uh, uh, threat that's that will uh you know cause some pain to some organization to be able to bow to that threat where do they wh where does that hit and what are we going to do about it because you're right i did the math it's about at least according to this report about 100 weapons a, a year so you know you project that for 10 years we can all figure that out will they break will they break that and if they do now what can, so you're the you're the deterrence you know strategist here, and you've asked me in the past how many weapons does it take to uh, to deter, and I always say, well, in the past, whatever we had deterred, so that was the number. But looking to the future is a whole heck of a lot harder. But that's why we have Curtis and Kirk here. So I'd like to hear what you have to say. <laughs> well, well, Kirk, your thoughts. I'm going to be scared for a second. Okay, I'm going to pay. I'm going to I'm going to play. Uh, the sky is falling here, right? So, and I'm going to put my, my business school consulting hat back on, which is- Wait a minute. Why, I think oh, you I, did that last week. 
I did, and you know, I used to do that at the Pentagon, and it made a lot of four stars upset. Um, <laughs> so I'm 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 going to just throw out some you know math in public here, right? So we got X number of silos. You don't build a silo unless you think you can load it in a reasonably short period of time. Um, so I'm going to take I'm I'm going to say they've got if they've got X number of silos, they've got some greater number of missiles than they have silos. And those missiles have some number of warheads greater than one. Um, and I like the number two and three because the math is easy. So I'm going to say that if they've got 300 missile silos or 400 missile silos, and we're saying they got 500 weapons, um, our math's off by at least a factor of two. Because in addition to the weapons that they need to fill those missile silos, they got submarines and they got bombers. And they're one of only three countries that's going to have a that has a strategic heavy bomber. Um, so their warheads aren't all dedicated to that. They've got a hedge, they've got a stockpile, and all those things like that. So you know, I'll throw out a number just to scare everybody. I think we probably guessed by a fact off by a factor of four. Wow, that's um, a big that's a big miss. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw out the high end of the range being two thousand and the low end of the range being a thousand. And, wow. and now I okay. just pissed off a lot of people in government, but that's what a McKinsey consultant would tell you. Okay. Uh, well, interesting. Um, I, 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 I tend to agree with you. At least if we've got to, uh, Jim, you asked how much, you know, takes to deter. Um, well, you know, we, we now have to consider you know, those new silos out there as targets that we have to cover, right. In a counter force strategy, um, but it seems that uh, that at least the the current administration is determined that that there's no need that what we have will is enough to deter. There's no need to add any more weapons uh, to the arsenal. And uh, I, I'm curious as to uh, as to how uh, Mr. Sullivan and others have come up with that uh, num that that number, which is still a number even though it's it's plus zero. Um, and, but in any case. That is uh, is confusing uh, to me. Let's go on to the third point uh, that I wrote here with Adam, which is that the PRC now has approximately, again, this was the number out of them, approximately uh, 350 ICBMs. Okay, so you get into your, your, your numbers game there, Kirk. And that some of them include a newly modified DF-5C, uh, which is a multi-megaton class nuclear warhead. Now we are debating here in America here in the last couple of weeks of eliminating our last megaton weapon, the BAD three. This may be, I argued in a previous podcast that this is why the B 6113 is being invented. It is so that we can politically eliminate the BAD three. Uh, Jim and Adam disagree with me on that. Um, but that, that is okay. But I would argue that our adversaries see value in a multi-megaton, not just a megaton weapon, but a multi-megaton weapon, which I would infer that to be two megatons or more. <laughs> okay, so, so, so these, Curtis, let me ask I you I mean, this is, well, real quick, This these are city-busting kind of there you weapons, go. right? So their job is to hold at risk, hold hostage American cities and populations, not 
military uh, uh, areas, uh, ICBM silos, and, and other sorts of, of things. So there's a different strategy going on uh, in Beijing with regard to how they think they need to deter America. So let's go to you first, Kirk. What do you think about that? Um, I think it points to a mixed-use strategy. Okay. Okay. Um, I don't think it, I, you know, I, I, uh, I hesitate to think anybody has a, uh, purely counter force or counter value strategy, um, because especially when you factor in second strike, right? So maybe you're, you're going counter value or counter force with your, your, your initial, uh, loadout. But in the end, when you get down to having some percentage of your arsenal, you get down to going counter value. Um, which is the trap for the people who are trying to reduce our our arsenal, especially, you know, if, to Curtis's point, if they're trying to get rid of the B-83, but you're trying to go to lower numbers, you're getting to, you, you know, at some point you get to a point where counterforce no longer is viable. And you have to go to what, in in the terminology of some of the people who, who couch this, who've been in government, min deterrence levels. Right. And when you, when you, and, and, you know, I've had this discussion with people and said, when you, when you say min deterrence to me, what you're saying is counter value, that we are now shifting our strategy for the sake of reducing warheads to killing cities. And we've said, you know, there've been two sort of pillar, moral pillars of our nuclear strategy. One is we won't go first. And the other is we won't target cities. All right. right. So do you, you know, you have to have a coherent strategy. All right. So come up with a strategy and then build the force to execute that strategy. If you don't have a coherent strategy, then the force you have will drive you to a strategy that you may not be happy with. Agreed. Yeah, Jim? I, I also would say with that coherence, and I'd be curious, again, we're playing a numbers game here is if you have a strategy and you set in place rules of your own, we're not going to go first and we won't target cities, then you have to build in that strategy the capability of deterring an adversary that knows that. And that is key here. We can't deter an adversary that we think, well, they're not, you know, they're not going to plan for us to not hit their cities. Or they're going to plan for us to, you know, make other kinds of decisions. We've got to be clear in that messaging. And I don't see, I don't see that, especially, I mean, you know, I, I think it was Curtis who said we wrote this paper for China. I didn't realize about China. Um, but the reality is the Chinese can read that report. In fact, probably read it before we read it. And, uh, and they know. It was written what, for them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they were the Kirk, audience. Let's, yeah. I mean, and, I mean, the third leg of the stool is declarative policy. Right. And right. when we write a report like that, what we're doing is we're writing declarative policy. We are telegraphing to the other side what we want them to, th- how do we want them to think about our strategy? And we have to, we do it to try and make sure that they understand our strategy is credible. And those three, you have to connect those three dots if we rewind to 2010 and talk about declarative strategy, you know, de- declarative statements, Putin talked about de-escalating 
in the near abroad against NATO by using nukes. And then he rolls it out again just prior to going into Ukraine. Um, you know, that was a very deliberate thing. And so these reports that come out, especially in the unclassified version, um, I always view them as being written for the enemy to read first. So, so let me add to that, because uh, I, 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 I totally agree with you, Kirk, on all of what you just said. But I don't think it applies to this annual report, because okay. what they're reading is that we don't know anything about them. Right. Probably the word probably used over a hundred times in this report. Uh, all of these, un, you know, uh, estimates of this or that, um, and and uh, and and really, it's a report of all of the nastiness that's going on over there and the potential risk. And really, um, as a motivator to Congress, if anything, to your point, Kirk, I think it could make them think, "Uh oh, they now have an idea of what we're doing, and they're going to, you know, Congress may decide to start funding some things that that, but." But the, I just say that the administration, the current administration, has no interest other than the B-6113 in doing anything other than the normal modernization schedule that we have, which we know is not enough. It is a plan that is 13 years old and getting older every year because that's when it was designed and the world was way different back then. And uh, and and so we're what we're doing is describing how the threat has gotten worse. And then we make excuses to ourselves to say that we, but we don't need to do anything about it. That what we have is still good enough. And uh, and and, but when you take this report and you link it to the recent uh, posture commission report that was done for Congress, now you can kind of get an idea of okay, because the posture says commission says, hey, we've got to do some things that are different, and it may include building up. And so and we still not a strategy, urgent. still not a and strategy, but at least it's an it's a it's an impetus for change. And and they use the word urgent a lot of times they do. in that in that report. Well, and, so, the, and this report drives the urgency. That's what's so great about it. The, I mean, they're really I mean, you know, I, I talked about one audience being the other the, the other side. Right. right. Um, so, you know, putting my, my Pentagon hat back on the other side is everybody who doesn't live in the building. Right. Um, right. So that includes the American public. That includes um, our adversary. That includes our friends who rely on us for extended deterrence. And this wouldn't be the first report that we didn't think about how our friends were going to think about the report and <laughs> and, and and how uncomfortable that was going to make them. Right. I mean, the Japanese were not a big fan of us getting rid of T. Lam N. No, they were not. Because they read that as a, a you know, a weakening of our assurance. Um, you know, when you couple it to what's going on in the Middle East, all right, and where the Iranians are relative to a weapon and what yeah. sort of proliferation that will create in, you know, the swath that kind of stretches across the south of the Eurasian uh, peninsula or uh, continent. Um, where, where do, how far do we have to go down that road before some of our friends, you know, I, I've heard it, I heard it today. Will Taiwan reinvigorate its one-time nuclear weapons development program? Will Korea do the same thing? What mm -hmm. about Japan? What about the Saudis? 
All right. I think we're, you know, we could have by lowering our levels as far as we have inadvertently entered into an era of, pardon the pun, explosive proliferation. Right. All right. Hey, Jim, before I move on to the, to the last one, uh, did you want to add anything to this? No, I, I really like the, the inside outside view that Kirk provides here. Uh, so I have, you know, I, I always look at, you know, try to take the negative side on this. I really can't find one except to say, I, I agree when I read this, it was what do, and I started with uh, saying, what do our adversaries think? But the second part of that question you guys beat me to is what do our allies think? Oh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's right. Well, I'll add on here before I go on to the last one that I want to talk about today uh, to to Kirk's point Um, here. Just very recently, Secretary of Defense Austin was in uh, South Korea, um, you know, once again, reassuring the South Koreans of the ironclad, you know, agreement that America will will be there to come to the defense. And this this cap comes on the on the uh, on the heels of a report that was just released by by a, the Korean, a Korean def, uh, think tank called Asan and Rand, uh, where they came up with the idea um, that uh, perhaps there should be a hundred uh, non-strategic nuclear weapons, uh, sort of refurbished and set aside at Korean cost uh, and earmarked for them. Uh, you can see a reference to that piece um, on our website, uh, globalsecurityreview.com. Uh, so, and then, and then you see that the, uh, the secretary of defense, uh, again, standing in, in South Korea the other day, reassuring them, it seems like we're working very hard to keep, uh, let me say this differently. We're working harder to keep nuclear weapons out of South Korea than we are at getting nuclear weapons out of North Korea. And I think this is something that we are, we are really misfocused on. <laughs> well, Curtis, one is a problem we can maybe solve, and the other is a problem we have no solution for. Either. That's probably true. We go for the low hanging <laughs> fruit, right? Let's beat up on our friends and 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 deny them the the ability to defend themselves. The question really becomes, um, you know, unless we're going to refurbish our internal capacity, do we even have the capability to do burden sharing? Um, and what does you know assurance look like? a decade from now in that region. And, you know, we there. it's not so long ago that we had nuclear weapons stationed in South Korea. Mm-hmm. That's right. At the height yeah. of the Cold War. All right. Um, you know, we, uh, we, we, we talk about burden sharing in NATO, but what is burden sharing going to look like with the AUKUS submarine program? Right. With the F-35 uh, um, acquisitions uh, by, you know, our Asian allies. Um, with, you know, we, we've talked about for a long time basing. And one of the things I thought you were going to say uh, in conjunction with Secretary Austin's uh, visit, um, probably even more importantly, an Ohio class paid a visit to Busan <laughs> yeah. not too long ago. Right. And that got everybody's attention. Uh, you know, that 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 was certainly on a par with, uh, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh Clinton visiting uh, or Pelosi visiting Taiwan. Well, I would say this, that at least for a few moments, the adversaries knew where one submarine was. Uh, and that may not necessarily be a good thing. Um, let's let's jump over to the last item that I want to talk about today with you all, uh, is that the PRC is likely 
developing advanced nuclear delivery capabilities like the Fractional Orbital Bombardment System, or the FOBs, coupled with hypersonic glide vehicles, and that they actually tested one of these back in 2021. We knew this. I believe even the uh, the, the chairman, uh, General Milley, called it a Sputnik moment or referred to it as a that someone else had called it a Sputnik moment. Uh, and this thing had actually orbited the Earth before reentering the atmosphere to strike a target. And, uh, and, and this is a great concern because the Russians tried to do this at the end of the Cold War. Uh, they never were really able to perfect it. Uh, this is basically a weaponization of space because you are putting the potential, uh, there's a potential for putting nuclear weapons in low Earth orbit. Uh, and it seems like the the design of these weapons, which basically have um, a, 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 a literally a worldwide range uh, and can hit any target in the world, um, I don't know what the deterrent value is of this. This, to me, is a first strike terror weapon um, that uh, that we kind of just sit idly by and let happen. Yet consider, you know, if we want to keep our B eighty threes or develop slickum, that that somehow is destabilizing. Uh, Jim, what say you on this? Yeah. So I the the big concern in number eight is that right or number seven? Number seven. And number yeah. seven from your article, yeah, the, the, the big problem is, uh, of course, in the reduction of warning time, and that is aggressive. That's and again, point. that aggressive move uh, tells you there's some offensive strategy in the mix, and that should be concerning. Oh. And there, go ahead, Kirk. No, no, you, no, you hit the key no. point there. And I think it was a, a previous nuclear view that I was reading. Well, I've just been doing too much reading lately. But <laughs> that closing of the decision window yes. was the impetus for the START Treaty from the Russian side. When we got the decision window by putting Glickham and yes. Pershing II and that in Europe, and we closed their decision window down to there, they said, okay, we got to go with the IRBM treaty. We got to go with START and get on board with it because we've got no answer to that. Well, the, I see FOBs as, as submarines in space. Yeah, but, <laughs> All right. but there's one other piece of this, Kirk, that, that really is important, and that is just recently the administration has negotiated with China to remove any artificial intelligence decision-making piece out of the, the nuclear decision, which actually provides the advantage to this exact weapon. That's concerning. Well, what's even more concerning is the Chinese will ignore that and do it on their side and will abide by it. Well, of course. Well, of course. Uh, <laughs> we cannot make agreements that have no verification in them, especially with the Chinese. Uh, it is just too too risky. Um, so, uh, you know, it, 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 Jim, do you, do you think, you know, without getting, you know, too uh, technical or or <laughs> and staying in the open areas, do we think that the Chinese uh, uh, hypersonic glide vehicles are really that capable? Uh, they seem to have they seem to have systems that we don't have, or cap more of them, or better capability. I'm just I'm just as a layman out here, I'm just not sure where we are in comparison to them. Uh, Congress has been told that that we're behind. Is that true? I, I don't think I can answer that question uh, on this cast. Uh, the uh, but what is known is uh, that any capability, and when we talked about this uh, when we were talking before about the physics packages, etc., it's the upgraded 
delivery systems and the accuracy and the capability of hiding or maneuvering that Russia has talked about. Our adversaries have decided to take a different approach to their nuclear capabilities in a way that counters our given and stated uh, uh, restrictions on the way that we will build our, our, our nuclear strategy. For example, a mobile system, as Curtis has pointed out in previous podcasts, uh, a mobile system that can be hidden, can be maneuvered, you can't pre-target, uh, I, I dare to say can be put into a civilian area uh, for a launch. Uh, those things are scary when you preset all of your decision-making in this case. When we reduce the decision-making or we, when we have an extended decision-making time, um, and don't use our capabilities to do that. That's a problem. So when these aircraft can fly, and and I think I think there's a lot. I think there's a lot of hype about hypersonics. <laughs> uh, there's a pun in <laughs> Okay, there's a lot of hype. Okay, and hypersonics. As I said that a second time, in case our audience didn't get it, like Curtis did. The uh, <laughs> there's a lot. Uh, there's a lot of technology to make those aircraft fly well, be accurate, and be controlled. And so they exhibit vulnerabilities that are outside of this podcast, but we need to think about and we need to build strategies in both our conventional and our nuclear capabilities and in our cyber and electronic warfare, et cetera, to be able to counter those. And those are things that are sort of unseen that make this magic pill not so magic all the time. I'll just leave it at that. All right. Well, that sounds good. We're running out of time. Kirk, you want to uh, add yeah. your last point here? My last my last point is I think, you know, we, we're probably going to get a bucket. This may be the bucket of cold water, okay, because a lot of these capabilities that the Russians and the Chinese are fielding now, we talked about theoretically years ago on our side. And the, the problem was any modernization or capability enhancement was radioactive right all right we, <laughs> we, we couldn't go near no it. pun we intended yes these things yeah pun very much intended um but i mean you know let's face it there's a there's a there's a part of the policy making community out there that just can't get past nukes are bad right all right and any improvement to nukes are bad and i totally understand their thinking but our enemies don't share that view and they get a vote and unilateral disarmament doesn't work. All right, Jim, uh, what are your final points? Well, my, my last, and, and Curtis is going to hate me for this. I'm a disarmament person. I will, I think we should disarm after everyone disarms and forgets everything they know about building nuclear weapons, then we should disarm. But anyway, so I at least am open. Okay. So anyway, I think it's a very good discussion. I, I don't think there's as much disagreement among us because I think this is a very clear article. So I want to thank the writers, both Curtis Begiffen and Adam Lowther. I think it's a good article welcome. on, on uh, Global Security Review. And I think it's very uh, valuable for our listeners to go out and at least see those pieces, but go back and look at the actual uh, document. I, it was very useful for me. So in that, listen to this podcast, read the article, go to GSR every day and get the updated information, our EAMs, and see what's happening at, at, at the National Institute for Deterrent Studies. So last for our audience, 
You're going to see some changes to our podcast coming up in the very near future. Don't be alarmed if the logos change and some of the words change. It's still the great content. We're just expanding our effort and making it better for you, the listener, based upon input that you have given us. So back to you, Curtis. All right. I'm going to close us out here with this, uh, these uh, two thoughts. Uh, the last one, a uh, second to the last one, or the penultimate thought here is that um, we, uh, uh, our government needs to be really honest with the American people. And we need to be precise in our language and we need to explain the threat as it is. I understand that it may not be within a, a, a political goal to have more nuclear weapons, but this is not the world that, that, uh, that we're in where we can look to dis, uh, disarm or even retard our ability to, uh, to, to be where we need to be. We, we have to address these threats and we need to be honest with ourselves and not hide these risks uh, from the American people. I think if you're open and honest uh, with the American people, they will support and understand um, the amounts of money and effort that need to be put forth. This President Biden reminds us almost that at the end of every speech that we are the United States of America and that there is nothing when we put our minds to it that we can't do. And I would count this as one of those things. The last thing I'll say is I'm going to borrow an anecdote from one of my favorite generals, and I'm going to leave him uh, nameless. But when he, if he hears this, he'll, uh, he'll know that I'm referring to him. When disarmament happens, I am going to throw the biggest party in the world at my house. And everyone is invited. Come over, drink my beer, eat my, eat my chips, um, and, and we'll, we'll, we will we will celebrate that there are no more nuclear weapons. But I have one rule for all of you who come to my house. You are not allowed to pet my unicorn. Okay? All right. So there we go. I hope you all have. We're entering the holiday season, so enjoy. Happy Christmas shopping. And uh, until next week, we always want to remind you to think deterrence. Thank you for listening to this week's The Nuclear View. We hope you found it engaging and valuable. The Nuclear View is released each Wednesday and is a production of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, a 501c3 organization. We are dependent upon donations to provide our podcasts. Every donation helps keep this and many other deterrence-related activities happening and helps to bring about awareness of the peacekeeping value of U.S. strength and of our national deterrence. We occasionally answer questions from our valued listeners. If you wish to send us questions on a topic, please send your email to asknids at thinkdeterrence.com. That's asknids, one word, the at symbol, and thinkdeterrence, one word, dot com. If you enjoyed this show, check out our other weekly podcast, Nuclear Knowledge. You can catch all of our podcasts at thinkdeterrence.com under the Deterrence Podcast tab. We thank our producer, Kimberly Charrington, our sponsors, and all the fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informative nuclear view, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to always think deterrence.